Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, March 31st, 2010. You know, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is going to be one of the most important editions of Fighting for the Faith I've ever done. Stay tuned for details. It's going to be controversial, too. Wow. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of things being said about God that, well, they just um, fall woefully short. Uh, yeah, but here, so I mean, this is kind of how the things go nowadays. It, it seems like that somebody will have a bad anchovy on their pizza. It'll cause them to hallucinate something. They'll think that it was a spiritual experience, and as a result of it, they think they've encountered God, and then they'll turn around and preach it from the pulpit as if that's the thing they should be preaching instead of God's Word. So uh, we are not into uh, bad anchovy-based theology. Just want to let you know that. If you're suffering from visions as and hallucinations caused by bad anchovies, please go see a physician and don't you dare preach about it uh, because you're likely to mislead people and uh, point them away from Jesus Christ and on to something else. Just, you know, that's the thing. And that's isn't that always what bad theology does? Takes your focus off of Christ. Jesus Christ, our great Lord and Savior, our King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Ah, yeah, the one who came to earth, died on the cross for our sins, God in human flesh. Here we are. It's Holy Week, you know. It's Wednesday. Tomorrow's Monday, Thursday. And uh, those of you who uh, celebrate Monday, Thursday, this is uh, you know the the night when Jesus was betrayed and, and the celebration of the Lord's, the very first Lord's Supper, where the uh, Passover feast is transformed into the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. And then we've got Christ's death on Friday that we remember. Man, oh man, uh, some profound services that I've attended over the years have been those uh, Good Friday services. I... I have a difficult time attending them without um, destroying at least three to five uh, Kleenexes just from the tears because they're on display 
is the death of our Lord and Savior because of my sins, because of your sins. And the gravity and the weight of the situation, the gravity and the weight that my sin put Christ on the cross. My wretchedness. You see, I, I, don't, I don't come before you today on the radio as somebody who's holier and more righteous than you are. The fact is, I might actually be less. Instead, I come to you as a sinner, proclaiming to you the great news that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And he's calling you and me and the whole world to repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And that salvation is a free gift being offered by God. God freely declaring through his grace and and Christ's vicarious death on the cross for our sins that we are forgiven, debt paid in full, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So that there now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I, you know, I, I, I can't hear that. I cannot hear the gospel enough. I, you can almost say that I obsess on it because it's just so ridiculously profound that the God who created the heavens and the earth and me, this insignificant man made of dirt, mud, dust, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that sinners like you and me may not perish, but have everlasting life as a free gift from God. I, you know, there's, there is no better story than that. And that's what really we're all about proclaiming here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, at the opening of the show, I said today's edition of Fighting for the Faith was probably going to be the most important edition of Fighting for the Faith that I've done in a long time. And uh, in fact, I stand by that. In fact, let me kind of prep you ahead of time. Um, If you've been listening to the program, I have been alluding to the fact that I've been working on a project for a while and have hinted that I might discuss it. I'm ready to discuss some details of that project with you. And as a result of it, what I'm going to share with you is controversial. It's very controversial. And it's going to require me to tell you some things that um, you may be uncomfortable with the things that I'm saying. That being said, I stand by what I'm about to say, and I'm more than capable of defending what I'm about to say. And in order to say it, I'm going to have to regain here in the United States and wherever you are listening we need to regain the use of some words that have been horribly abused and in which uh, it, basically they've, they don't mean anything anymore. And those words are controversial. And uh, what I'm also going to need you to do is hear me out and listen carefully to what I'm saying and also listen carefully to what I'm not saying. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of point that out along the way and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, it's about the emergent church, and uh, if you follow me on Facebook and Twitter, uh, then you know that uh, today I wrote a piece called Socialism Comes in Another Color. We'll be talking about that, and uh, that'll kind of be our springboard into the topic. Okay. That being said, make yourself comfortable. Now, I I just found out today um, 
Phil Johnson from the Pyromaniacs blog, he sometimes listens to uh, this uh, podcast, uh, Fighting for the Faith While Mowing His Lawn. Now, I wouldn't say that's a comfortable thing to do, um, you know, but uh, I'm, you know, it, that's exciting to hear. So with, with this, this fact, this is a whole new way of listening to Fighting for the Faith that we haven't even delved into yet. Uh, but make yourself comfortable if you can, you know, prop, you know, get, get on the couch, make yourself comfortable. We don't have a problem if you want to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Jesus drank. It wasn't non-alcoholic grape juice because that didn't exist. And uh, listen, the biblical mandate is uh, is against drunkenness, not enjoying above an adult beverage. Just like all gifts from God, they can be abused. So don't abuse it. Um, and if you live in a colder climate, fuzzy, buzzy, uh, fuzzy bunny slippers are completely uh, okay. Of course, you can listen while exercising or mowing your lawn now. We find that's a way to listen to Fighting for the Faith. Uh, but uh, that being said, I'm going to begin uh, today's edition with a blog post that I wrote over at ExtremeTheology.com. The, ExtremeTheology.com is uh, one of the blogs that I write for. I am also the curator of the Museum of Idolatry, but we'll, we'll kind of save the Museum of Idolatry for another time. So if you want to actually see this article, you can. And the name of the article is Socialism Comes in Another Color. And I need you to hear me out. I'm going to be making a case that when we talk about the emergence as being Marxist, that that only puts us in the general ballpark. But Marxism flows in two main streams. One of them is Bolshevik Russian style uh, communism. And then there's another. Let me explain. If you've read Brian McLaren's books, Everything Must Change, The Secret Message of Jesus and a New Kind of Christianity, then you know that Brian McLaren is advocating a new global economy that is a synthesis between the current capitalist free market and Marxism. Uh, to the American ear, this sounds just like, you know, communist Marxism. Uh, this has to do with the fact that uh, when Americans hear about collectivist, centrally controlled economies where wealth is forcibly redistributed, the only thing that comes to the American mind is red Bolshevik Marxism. In, in the American mind, those Western European nations that are slipping deeper and deeper into collectivist redistributive economies are turning deeper and deeper shades of red. In the American mind, capitalism plus Marxism equals a milder form of Marxism. Why do Americans think this way? Well, because we fought the Cold War against the Red Soviet Union. We fought the Red North Koreans, the Red Chinese. We fought the Red Viet Cong and the Red Santanistas, although I don't think that was legal. Uh, in the American mind, uh, there is only one existing color of socialist ideology that remains on planet Earth, and that color is red. Those who think Brian McLaren is a red Bolshevik Marxist, by the way, he is a Marxist, but he's not a red uh, Bolshevik Mar Marxist. It, those who think that he is a red Bolshevik Marxist are missing a very important yet somewhat subtle nuance in McLaren's rhetoric and the ideology that he is promoting. I am challenging all of you. Yeah, Rosebro is issuing a challenge to you. By the way, 
I digress for a second. Still haven't heard from Perry Noble's camp, yay or nay, on uh, whether or not he will uh, take me up on my challenge regarding the Sermon Cage fight. But I just thought I'd throw that in there. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> we continue. Um, so I am challenging all of you to open your eyes and educate yourselves on this matter because correctly understanding what color of socialist McLaren is will make all the difference in the world in you being in your being able to correctly understand what he is promoting and also what needs to be done to refute him and those he is working with. Now, some insights regarding the other color of socialism. The other color of socialism is, well, very difficult to define. And scholars have only recently been able to pin down most of the common ideological themes of this other form of socialism. Uh, one of the reasons why it has been difficult to pin these themes down is because this other color of socialism is more than a political theory. In fact, it is truly a political religion. And therefore, it must be studied theologically in order to correctly understand and analyze it. This political religion is overtly utopian and envisions a global state that will usher in the kingdom of God. And it's going to usher in the kingdom of God here on earth by achieving its social, political, and economic objectives. What are the social, political, and economic objectives that Brian McLaren is promoting in his understanding of the kingdom of God? Well, he doesn't hide them. They can easily be summarized as, one, security. Uh, that means to end all war and religious violence. Two, economic justice which is basically a third way between capitalism and Marxism. It's a Hegelian synthesis of the two, if you would. you got to think about that for a second. Um, by the way, which historically, which form of socialism allowed for both the, uh, the, the ability to retain private property and for people to own businesses so long as they, um, as those things existed for the benefit of the common good. I just throw it out as a question because there is such a thing historically. Uh, but the third, by the way, is social justice, which means an end to victimization by deconstructing individualism and the us versus them mentality that is found in many groups that, quote, exclude. Uh, these would then be replaced by inclusive communities through a realized unity of plurality. And the fourth is ecologically sustainable global prosperity. A completely, in other words, a completely green global economy with an emphasis not only on, limit, on limiting or eliminating fossil fuels, but also strict regulation of human diets and health. Now, I've gleaned these four objectives from McLaren's books. And in, in, in a new kind of Christianity, McLaren chides all of the world's religions for not effectively answering or handling these what he calls crises uh, which means that in mclaren's mind solving these crises those are these objectives is the job of religion yet all four of these objectives really are political object objectives and not religious objectives and they certainly are not the objectives that jesus laid out for the church in the great commission so ask yourself this question why 
does Brian McLaren believe these political objectives are supposed to be solved by religion? If you don't believe me, I strongly recommend that you check out Brian McLaren's book, A New Kind of Christianity, particularly focus on pages 252 through 259. I think that would help you out there. Well, here's the deal. So let me ask the question again. Why does Brian McLaren believe these political objectives are supposed to be solved by religion? The answer is shockingly simple. Brian McLaren is a follower of a heretical, political, utopian religion that has hijacked the term kingdom of God. McLaren is an ideologue. He's not a theologian. And if you do your homework, you will discover that what he is really promoting is the other color of socialism. Now, let me help you out here. Let me give you some definitions. These are some definitions of the other color of socialism. One author defines this other color of socialism as, quote, um, a religion of the state. It assumes the organic unity of the body politic and longs for a natural leader who is attuned to the will of the people. It's a holistic, it, it is holistic in that it views everything as political and holds that any action by the state is justified in order to achieve the common good. It takes responsibility for all aspects of life, including our health and well-being, and seeks to impose uniformity of thought and action through regulation and social pressure. Everything, including the economy and religion, must be aligned with its objectives. Any rival identity is part of the problem and therefore defined as the enemy. Uh, Rousseau's political philosophy, by the way, beats in the heart of this other color of socialism. Rousseau envisioned a uh, divinized community that was defined by ethnic, uh, not that, sorry, that wasn't defined by ethnicity or geography or custom, rather that would be bound together by the collective will, which in turn would then be enforced by an all-powerful God state. Okay, so it's a fusing of God and, and state in such a way that you can't untangle the two. That's what we're talking about here. Another author back in 1993 defined the ideological heart of this other color of socialism as, quote, the practical and violent resistance to transcendence. Um, it's a spirituality. It's the spirituality is one of eminence. It's a mysticism of nature and community that would ultimately heal the alienation of modern life. Violent resistance to transcendence? That sounds exactly like the emergence and their progressive cousins and their incessant attacks against God's transcendent word and God's transcendent moral laws and Christ's return in glory to judge the living and the dead. A mysticism of nature and community? That sounds like it could have been written yesterday as a description of the general mystique of the emergent milieu. But it was written 17 years ago as part of a definition of the other color of socialism. So why is Brian McLaren waging war against the historic Christian faith? Answer, because he's a follower of a rival religion. His religion is the other color of socialism. 
Now it's time for you to wake up and understand what that other color of socialism is and what it believes because it's back and it's been waging war against historic Christianity for many years now and it's currently winning because Christians haven't correctly understood what they're really fighting against. Now, what is the other color of socialism? If the Bolsheviks had the red color, the other color could be described as the brown color. The other color of socialism is what we call ideological fascism. Now, I've just said the word fascism. And immediately, many of you, your mind just went to, wait a second, fascists are the Nazis. They're the guys who put people in concentration camps and all that kind of stuff. Now, stop. I did not say that McLaren was a Nazi. There is a difference between Nazis and fascists. In other words, I let's how do we put it? Um, um, all Nazis are fascists, but not all fascists are Nazis. So we have you have to listen very carefully to what I'm saying here. I am not saying McLaren is a Nazi, nor am I implying that at all, nor do I mean to imply it. I am saying that Brian McLaren is a ideological fascist, and what he promotes is ideologically fascism. I know that might come as like a big shock for many of you. However, that is the historical truth. It's an absolute fact. That means that we have to recover some words here. Because currently in the United States, if somebody uses the word fascist, it's a basically a conversation stopper. You know, because that's like basically saying that you're a Jew killer, that you want to take over the world and kill and you're an anti-Semite or you're a white supremacist. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, what I'm talking about is not that at all. And unfortunately, that's what the term has come to mean. And it's time for us to recapture um, what ideological fascism is and what the contours of its ideology are, because that's exactly what the emergent church movement is. It's a rebirth of ideological fascism. Now, to help you out, if you go to fightingforthefaith.com, you go to my website, fightingforthefaith.com, or piratechristianradio.com, there you will find links to two books. Now, by the way, uh, they will take you to uh, the fulfillment of uh, the orders of these books will not be done by me. They'll be done by uh, Amazon.com. But you're going to find links to two books. One is a book written by Gene Edward Veith entitled Modern Fascism. I if you listen, I, I if there's one book you need to read, it's that book. And if you're going, if you're not interested in reading the whole thing, then I'm going to challenge you to buy the book 
and read the first 55 pages of that book. And while you're reading it, keep in mind everything that you have heard and learned about the emergent church here at Fighting for the Faith. Now, that book was written in 1993 by Jean Edward Veith, well-respected Lutheran scholar. This Jean uh, Edward Veith is no slouch, okay? And in his book, he makes the connection between theological liberalism and this modern fascism, okay? So you need to read that book at least the first 55 pages. The second book you need to pick up is by Jacob Goldberg. Jacob Goldberg is a Jewish columnist. He's a, he's a journalist. And so he's he, he comes from a unique perspective on this. And the name of his book is Liberal Fascism. Liberal Fascism. You need to pick up both of those books and you need to read them. Your eyes will be opened and you'll go, I get it, I see it, I understand it. Okay? So I'm giving you all homework. Now, we'll be talking more about this uh, it, you know, when, we come, when we come back from the break. In fact, um, what I'm going to do is we're going to... Um, we're going to take we're going to do two things when we come back from the break. We're going to listen to Brian McLaren's question number 7 about uh, the quest the sex question and uh, the, really the homosexuality question and then I'm going to read to you part of a uh, academic article written about the rise of fascism in Germany. Okay? It actually has its roots, well, you could say it really begins to take shape in the years between World War One and World War Two, in in uh, in Germany, okay. Keep in mind, Hitler doesn't come to power until the, the 1930s. So, in the years 1919 to 1933, you there is a almost an identical movement to the emergent church movement in Germany, okay. It's called the Volkisch movement. We'll just refer to it as the Volk, which means folk, okay. And uh, when we re we're going to refer to the Volk movement. And funny enough, I'm going to make a case that um, Brian McLaren has a true historical counterpart and parallel uh, in history in the, in the form of a man by the name of Dietrich Klages. And uh, we'll, I'm going to be reading part of an article uh, by uh, a professor at the University of Calgary by the name of Carla uh, Pova and her husband Irving. Uh, and uh, they've written this brilliant article uh, that talks about the Volk, the modernist Volk movement in Germany between the, uh, the between the wars, and its and how it led to the rise of the fascist state. Okay, and so and they understand what fascism is, and so I I want to point this out. And then our sermon review today, in hour number two. Is is a good sermon by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, uh, sorry Charmley of uh, Bethel Evangelical Free Church in uh, Great Britain, and the name of the sermon is "Don't Expect a Miracle." <laughs> That's kind of a depressing uh, topic in in light of what I just said. So I understand I've said some controversial things here. Stay tuned. I'm going to uh, back some of this stuff up, but I'm giving you all a homework assignment. You need to read. 
two books. Again, Modern Fascism by Gene Edward Veith, written in 1993, and Liberal Fascism, written by Jacob Goldberg. I'll have links to them at the fightingforthefaith.com website as well as the piratechristianradio.com website. Y'all need to read these books because, yes, we're dealing with a form of Marxism, but it's not Bolshevik communism we're dealing with here. We're dealing with fascism, which is actually a religion, a competing religion to Christianity. And unfortunately, we're going to have to talk about this thing and call it what it is so that we can understand it properly, so that we can know how to biblically refute it. All right? Now, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can follow me on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Fools Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. 
Tickles sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Morning. I will tell you the truth, even if it requires upsetting you or making you think I'm a nut. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio reach to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, there are two yellow buttons. One says, join our crew. The other says, donate. And uh, pick one. And the idea is is that uh, if you join our crew, you're signing up to contribute automatically $6.95 a month. That's like nothing. And the idea here is that once we get to 1,000 listeners who've joined our crew, then that ensures that uh, on a monthly basis we're able to pay all of our bills. Why is that important? Because we don't have um, we don't have a line of credit. We don't have we don't have the ability to run in the red at all. And so, uh, thankfully, the Lord has seen fit through your generous contributions to make sure that we don't run into the red. And I thank you for that. However, we're still only about sixty you percent know, of the way to our goal of a thousand listeners who've joined the crew. So if you haven't done so yet, please do so now. If you'd like to contribute the amount uh, the amount of your choosing, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, and you can uh, send your gift in securely that way, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero. All right. Now, listen, I I understand I just, you know, like exploded a bomb in many of your guys's ears. I get it. I understand that. Now, this is where I tell you about the project that I've been working on. OK, um, some of you know 
that uh, I you know, basically am, have applied for a master's degree in theology from the Wittenberg Institute. It's a research master's degree in theology. And um, in fact, the, what I've been doing is doing a lot of the prep work for my master's thesis. My master's thesis, by the way, in the past I've said I'm writing on the, writing it on the emergent church. It just so happens that what I'm going to be writing my master's thesis on is the the uh, the parallels between emergent uh, Christianity and the Volk fascism that grew up in the uh, in the in Germany in the in the years between uh, the two world wars. That's what I'm going to be writing my master's thesis on. So when I've been talking about this is a project I've been working on. This is something that I've been researching for a while now, and this only recently has come into sharper and sharper focus. And uh, some of the people I've been working with to confirm my thesis that you know that I'm on the right track, that there are valid parallels, that what I'm looking at in the emergent church is actually a new form of fascism that has a, a new form of ideological fascism that has grown up. In our midst, uh, the people that you know, the scholars and the academics that I have been talking with, they not only confirm that, uh, that, that that what I'm seeing is absolutely valid. They're not only they're encouraging me to not only write a master's thesis, they actually want me to go and get a Ph.D. in the subject. And so that's the project that I'm working on. Now you're thinking, how are you going to do all that? I have no idea. So, <laughs> you know, so the pro this is actually part of a bigger academic project that I've been working on and researching for some time. And uh, and so it, it wasn't until today that I felt I, I, I was I could comfortably discuss the issue with you here on the air. So uh, that being the case, um, I actually can back up a lot of this stuff and I will be backing it up in in future editions of Fighting for the Faith and kind of laying out for you the the, the overt parallels between the emergent church and and its emergent fascism it's again it's ideological fascism and I think this is a good way to understand it okay is that um ideological fascism is a very heady academic thing okay it envisions a different world okay and it envisions that this new world is the, the, the visible kingdom of God on earth and that, that we're all supposed to move towards that thing. Uh, some major contours are in it is this complete emphasis on unity. Okay? Uh, when, you talk, when you hear emergents talk about community or understanding the Bible in community, what they're doing is they're basically saying that in juxtaposition to individuality. And so when you hear guys talk about, listen, we're not interested in our personal salvation. We're interested in living in a loving community. That's actually one of the themes of fascism. The idea here is that ideological fascism is not Nazism. Okay, but what it does, it what it really is, is a... A degenerative form of liberal theology. Okay, the analogy that I've been uh, telling people is is that when you th they they th they talk about the half life of uranium, apparently uranium is a is a highly volatile element, and what happens is is that it you know it has it degenerates down to eventually it becomes lead, which is inert. Okay, but you know it degenerates in different stages all along the way. 
liberal theology is very similar, okay? And so what happens is is that there's progressions in in the apostasy that occurs within liberal theology. And uh you know, it begins by throwing off God's word, critiquing it, uh it basically embracing this very liberal worldview, but it doesn't stay there. It actually goes to another degenerative state. And that degenerative state, uh, the way it looked in Germany between World War One and World War Two, you can describe it as this: it was, it became uh, Darwinian, Hegelian existentialism. Now, those are the philosophical blendings of this thing, and it, it rejected rational theology and instead embraced irrational theology, and it was very eclectic. Uh, mixing things that nobody would ever mix because, well, that's what they do. And it's very, the emergent church is very similar in its uh, mystique, in its milieu, and in its thinking uh, to what we saw in the degenerative state of liberal theology in Germany. And here's what happens is it envisions a world that's different than ours and basically envisions a, a different religious end uh, to the world than what the Bible says. It rejects that Christ is coming back to, ju- to judge the living and the dead, that some will go to heaven, some will go to hell. Actually, it's, that's not the right way of putting it, but some will be resurrected to eternal life, others to eternal condemnation. That's what the Bible teaches. They reject that and instead have this hope-filled eschatology that, uh, the, you know, basically this idea that rather than heading, you know, that r- man rather than falling actually ascended and that, uh, that, that Darwinian evolution is true and that we're wait, waiting for the next evolutionary step. And it, it's not just evolutionary steps biologically, but it's also evolutionary steps socially. And so McLaren constantly hints at this idea that there's some, that there's some next evolutionary step beyond empire. It's you know, we're, and we're going to give birth to this new evolutionary step beyond empire. And uh, that's what, you know, part of what he envisions the kingdom of God to be. And so when uh, liberalism gets to that phase, then what happens is, is that um, they, uh, re- they, they become openly hostile and reject all transcendent truth. So they reject this idea that God is, is morally in charge and that he, has, that he has a moral demand on humanity and that those human beings who continue to persist in rebellion and, and against God are liable to his judgment. They reject that. So you 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 have there is no transcendent God. There is no transcendent uh, moral code. There is no transcendent truth. Truth is only understood imminently, and it's understood in community. And so truth never rises above the community. As a result of it, when you start deconstructing the very things that hold a society together. Thought is deconstructed itself and attacked using irrational theology, and transcendent moral laws are also deconstructed. And what you lose is what we call the first use of God's law. Now, remember, when we talk about God's law, we talk about three valid uses. The first use of the law is the curb use. It's the use used by the government to basically keep us all from beating up on each other and stealing each other's stuff. Okay, so that the first use of the law is the use used by the government. 
Second use of the law is the primary use that shows us our sinfulness and wretchedness and our need for a savior. And the third use shows us what a good work is. But when when liberal theology gets to that stage where it begins to attack thought itself and begins to attack all transcendent truths, what it ends up doing is you throw out rational thinking and you throw out all curbs in society that would keep people from beating up on each other, okay? That basically you you, you create a decadent culture where there are no moral checks in place because there is no transcendent God, there is no transcendent truth that has any stake or claim upon how you live your life, okay? Now, along with it is that vision of a better future, so what ends up happening is, is that this deconstruction of thought and deconstruction of, of transcendent laws lays the groundwork, okay? It, be, it lays the foundation upon which later somebody like a Hitler could rise to power, okay? If you don't have any transcendent laws that govern everybody and you don't have any rational truth, you know, and, and you've deconstructed thought itself, then what ends and and you have this grand vision for the future that you call the kingdom of God, then eventually somebody's going to rise up and say, "Listen, are we going? Why are we talking about this all the time? All we ever do is talk, 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 talk. If you think that we're supposed to create this grand vision for the future, then let's get busy and do it." So, ideological fascism creates the moral vacuum that men like Hitler can arise in. And this is what I'm going to do my master's degree in theology and ultimately my doctorate in in theology. And I'm absolutely convinced that what we see in the emergent church is the next degenerative state where what they're attacking in the emergent church is thought itself and all transcendent truth with an emphasis on unity and this grand vision for the future that's completely different than the biblical uh, uh, vision for the future that's laid out in Scripture. Anyway, with that in mind, I know that's a lot to think about. It's okay. It's all right. I'll be around for a while. Um, by, by the way, if you want to read more about this, uh, there's a um, an article. If you want to kind of get an idea of this whole Volk uh, religion that you know create that basically became the uh, nucleus of fascism in Germany between the wars, um, that there's an article that you should read. The name of it is the Volkschist Modernist Beginnings of National Socialism. Its Intrusion into the Church and Its Anti-Semitic Consequences by Carla uh, Puva. Uh, that's P-O-E-W-E and Irving Hexham of the University of Calgary. Fascinating stuff. Look it up online, and I think you can get it at Religion Compass. Uh, but I do think you have to pay for it in order to see it. But it's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating stuff to consider. Now, with that in mind, let's uh, switch over to Brian McLaren. And with what I've just told you about how the emergents are deconstructing all transcendent moral laws and trans and basically deconstructing thought itself. I want you to listen then to Brian McLaren's uh, latest installment from the ooze.tv. Um, By the way, if you are suffering from theological ooziness, 
you need to go and see a doctor of theology immediately and get that cleared up. If you're suffering from theological ooziness, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. And you definitely need some sound biblical doctrine, Christ-centered theology, and the gospel itself, the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross for you to help clear up that theological ooziness. So without any further ado, here is uh, Brian McLaren and uh, Spencer Burke talking about question number seven from Brian's new book, The New Kind of Christianity, uh, on the sex question. All right, we're off to question seven. The sex question. How can we talk about sexuality without fighting about it and dividing about it? Okay, listen to the... How can we talk about sex without fighting about it or dividing about it? Okay? So here's my question for you. What is being deconstructed? Answer, God's transcendent moral and binding law regarding sexual behavior. What is being, what is it being replaced with? Unity. Community. It's the, what, listen carefully to what he's basically trying to do here. We've got to stop fighting about this and we all just need to unite together in love and, and respect and take it to a higher level. Who cares what the Bible says? You know, those six pesky verses about homosexuality and sex. Who cares? The most important thing is unity, not God's transcendent word. Okay, listen, listen carefully. I'm going to back it up just a little bit, and uh, I want you to hear what he's saying. Next question: How can we talk about sexuality without fighting about it and dividing about it and attacking each other about it? Why does it seem every time we talk about sexuality, we hit homosexuality? Yeah, that's actually one of the big questions I raise in. in in the book, I, I... real simple because homosexuality, like adultery and fornication and bestiality and uh, pedophilia, is a sin. It's a sin that Christ died for. And we need to call the people who are committing those sins to repentance and the forgiveness of those sins in Jesus' name. Not as people who are morally superior, but as, well, sinners ourselves. But listen to McLaren. What's he attacking? He's attacking God's transcendent moral word and law and replacing it with this new morality based upon inclusion and unity and community. But then I ask the question, unity around what? Unity for unity's sakes? Community for community's sake? I think our bad answers, our unhelpful answers to the first six questions help us understand why we're so tangled up about the issue of of homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So many authors will start with Leviticus or other books talking about sexuality. Why do you start with Acts? Yeah, I know almost always the arguments are from six verses from Leviticus, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Uh, Yeah, uh, Timothy, others. Um. Notice, what is he doing? Okay. From a hermeneutic point of view, he's committing a foul. This is an illegal use of hermeneutics. Clear passages always govern. Clear passages always govern. So if there are clear passages in the scriptures regarding the issue of homosexuality, and those passages clearly teach that it's a sin, 
you don't ignore them and then run to a different passage that doesn't deal with the issue of homosexuality and basically make it the governing passage. That's exactly what McLaren is doing. Why? Because he's deconstructing God's transcendent truth and replacing it with a new idea, unity, community, all getting along. But as I worked on this chapter, I was really blown away by the courage of Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, that just a few chapters into his history of the earliest months and years of the Christian movement, he decides to tell the story of the inclusion of someone who always had been excluded in the past. Uh, the man was first, he was not Jewish, he was a Gentile. He was a Gentile of African descent, different skin color, different racial background, different cultural background, but he's identified as a eunuch. And as a eunuch, he's not a typical heterosexual. Uh, hang on a second here. Um, is being a eunuch a sin? No, I, I'm asking the question, is it a form of sexual deviancy? What if it was, you know, he was eunuchized, <clears throat> is that a verb? Um, if he, What if he was uh, made a eunuch uh, against his will? I mean, he, you know, the idea was is that he worked for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And um, uh, the eunuchs, well, that, that particular <clears throat> procedure ensured that he didn't engage in sexual immorality with the queen. So it was kind of a, yeah, let's say, a, one of those hazards that go along with that particular job. That's different than homosexual sin. So notice what he's doing. He's uh, casting aside the clear passages, going to a passage that doesn't touch on the subject itself and making it govern. And notice how he tells the story. I mean, look how brave Luke was to talk about the story of inclusion. Somebody who was always excluded. That's the important thing because Christianity is apparently all about God's expanding concentric circles of inclusiveness. We continue. He will never have the traditional family. And um, Luke tells his story, and, and I do a close reading of the story. And to me, it's just amazing. The more I worked with that story, the more relevant I thought it was. To- the more you ignored the clear passages and the more you read into this other passage, things that were not there. To the issue of how we respond to gay and lesbian people. Mm-hmm. But that's not the only subject you hit. You deal with all of our subjects. Well, I actually think one of the reasons heterosexual people are so obsessed with homosexuality is that we're very anxious about dealing with our own sexuality. And we're having huge struggles in, in marriage and divorce rates, in uh, premarital sex, issues like pornography and all. Issues, issues, sins, sins, they're sins. Premarital sex, sin. Pornography, sin. You see, that's what's missing here. Uh, by the way, why? Because McLaren is, you know, he's been involved in, literally, deconstructing rational thought itself and deconstructing God's transcendent word and God's transcendent moral laws. And he's replacing him with a new ethic altogether, one that is against 
biblical teaching against the clear historic Christian faith. So he's deconstructing God's moral law. He's not talking about sins. They are just, you know, issues and problems and things, you know, angst regarding sexuality. But what's the important thing in McLaren's mind? Uh, well, this emergent idea of unity. Community. We shouldn't divide over issues of sex. The important thing is, is that we just love and include each other. All of the rest, we're all struggling with our sexuality. And this is where I think gay and lesbian people are doing all of us a favor by coming out of the closet about their sexual issues. They're helping all of us to come out of the closet and admit that we're all sexual beings and we're all struggling to figure out what that means and to figure out how to be faithful to God, to our spouses. Trying to figure out how to be faithful to God and to our spouses. Trying to figure out how to be, how are we supposed to figure that out? Now, the biblical answer would be, well, we figure out what it means to be faithful to God and to our spouses using God's transcendent word and God's transcendent moral law in order to identify what a good work sexually means, what is a sin sexually. But that's not what McLaren's sitting here talking about. We need to be in conversation with each other so that we can all figure this out in community. And the answer that we come up with in community while in conversation, well, that's that's all that matters. Again, this is an attack on the transcendent, and it's on purpose. And uh, so it's it's all of our story. Yeah, there's sure to be a pretty heated discussion, good and bad. Huh? Well, I hope that when people gather around this chapter and they talk about this chapter, they'll understand that they have a chance to start modeling respectful, open, honest dialogue that doesn't always end in the same old kinds of tired cycles of I'm right, you're wrong, but maybe we can bring the... the... No, God's word is right and you're contradicting it, therefore you're wrong dialogue up to a higher level interesting so there you have it by the way brian mclaren does have a direct historical counterpart and this is in uh in uh that article that i mentioned that uh that you really uh, if you want to go deeper in this understanding of uh, what was going on religiously in the, uh, in uh germany uh, that led to the rise of fascism between World War One and World War Two. The name again, the the name of the uh, article is the Volkisch, Volk, Volkisch Modernist Beginnings of National Socialism. It's in its intrusion into the church and its anti-Semitic consequences. Now, let me explain the Volk real quick here. Uh, this uh, this this uh, they just between the wars, um, there was basically a rise in these societies of people who would meet together in small groups in people's homes and read books and and you know kick around the latest ideas and that's what uh, what I'm referring to when I talk about the Volk and in, in many ways it parallels this whole post-modernity thing okay and the themes that come out of it really are the underpinnings of fascism which is in it's ideological fascism which is exactly what the emergent church is it's follows the exact same pattern has come up with almost identical conclusions, but rather than focusing in on a geography, now the scope is global. Okay, and um, and uh, Carla uh, uh, Pove in her in her article describes it as the Volkisch milieu, the Volkisch milieu. So um, let me read a little bit from her uh, from her article. And uh, by the way, 
uh, I'm going to be making a, a connection here. Uh, Brian McLaren's historical counterpart is found in Germany between the wars, and his name is Dietrich Klages. That's K-L-A-G-G-E-S. And um, let me let me read from uh, Car- I'm going to read a couple of segments of Carla's article. Uh, the, by the way, the Volkisch Milieu, Volkisch Milieu sat uh, sat on experiences and experiential knowledge, which fused the personal with the national and the past with the present. It did this by drawing on family epics and sagas and presumed uh, generically related religious mythological traditions, thus providing an emotive picture of the world that put followers in touch with their national heritage while pointing them to a new future that was significantly different from Christianity. Okay, let me continue reading here. Uh, Fascism, by the way, she defines it as a religious form of political behavior whose leaders and followers are preoccupied with community, uh, decline, humiliation, or victimhood, and uh, and uh, which they thought the the cure was national rebirth. Now you can almost say that uh, you know the emergent fascism is defined as a religious form of political behavior whose leaders and followers are preoccupied with community. Uh, victimhood decline and think the cure is a basically a new birth of a global community. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, German fascism, though, uh, Carla writes, uh, was really a new religion. Ambitiously, it, and it ambitiously mixed symbols of nation, evoked ancient Germanic myths and sagas in the context of uh, myths of modern racist uh, uh, paganism, which challenged the Christian churches. So this uh, fascism was eclectic. It borrowed ideas from various traditions, including theosophy, esotericism, uh, Germanic myths and sagas, Hinduism and social Darwinism. And it was particularly interested in Indian philosophy and spirituality. Even Islam and Japanese uh, Shintoism uh, were interested. To, uh, it was interested in those because they, uh, they cultivated heroism and accorded well with social Darwinism. Okay. Now, talking about Klages, so that gives you an idea of the whole Volk thing. That's the, this whole milieu of uh, thinking at the time, and so that gave rise to this religion state idea, this uh, political religion. Okay. Now, um, it, it, there's a biography written by, written by a man named uh, German uh, regarding Dietrich Klages. Okay. So, and it says, uh, German, uh, Carla writes, she says, German's recent biography of the, Christian, of the German Christian leader Dietrich Klages is highly instructive. Klages was the son of a forester who became a public school teacher of botany, zoology, mineralogy, physics, chemistry, and sport. And he fought on the Western Front during war, uh, the First World War and was wounded and received uh, the Distinguished Service Cross. After 1918, in utter despair about the German situation, Klages circulated among Volkish groups where he developed strong political interests. During this time, he wrote numerous articles about uh, political religious themes for the Volkish nationalistic news journals. Klages published his religious political convictions in a book that he entitled, listen to this, The Original Gospel of Jesus, the German Faith. In it, he revealed himself as a religious free thinker with highly political Volkish nationalistic ideas. Significantly, though, he argued that the church and the scripture had lost all authority and ceased to be the pillars of Protestantism. 
Therefore, it was the task of our time to define a new religious foundation and create a new faith to resolve political problems. Let me read this again. Okay. In 1925, Dietrich Klages published his religious political convictions in a book entitled The Original Gospel of Jesus, the German Faith. In it, he revealed himself as a religious free thinker, sounds like McLaren, with highly political Volkish ideas, again, sounds a lot like McLaren, significantly Clogus argued that the church and scripture had lost all authority and ceased to be the pillars of Protestantism, almost an identical argument used by Brian McLaren. Therefore, it was the task of our time to define a new religious foundation and create a new <laughs> a new faith to resolve political problems that's exactly what mclaren is doing in his books especially a new kind of christianity in fact i would say here the uh, the the parallels to dietrich clogus are frightening okay in short clogus Clogus's new religion, which is clearly identifiable as German Christianity, is clearly identifiable, sorry, with its clearly identifiable German Christian followers, is a synthesis of broadly Volkish ideas, Indo-Germanic or rather Persian and Hindu ones, and, uh, and it, along with a Volk-modified Gospel of Mark. Clogus's German Christianity sits on assumptions that are contrary to the primary premises of Judeo of the Judeo-Christian religion and have and have been rejected by that tradition as heresies. Um, in short, German Christianity that would be this this is Clogus's creation. It became known as German Christianity. It um, is uh, is is at home in the cultic. And the Volk milieu, where Hinduism and pre-Christian pagan traditions are almost the hallmarks by which cultic religious groups identify themselves. So, in other words, you really want to understand that this German Christianity was, you know, back in uh, the years between World War One and World War Two. Dietrich Klages created a brand new Christianity, a new Christianity that mixed Volk ideas, had a modified version of the Gospel of Mark that it subscribed to. Um, it mixed uh, Volk ideas with Hinduism and pre-Christian pagan ideas. And um, it was designed specifically in order to resolve political problems. And he, he created this new religion by claiming that the authority of the church and the Bible had ceased and that the and claimed that the task of his time was to define to define a new religious foundation and create a new faith that a faith that would resolve political problems that is exactly what Brian McLaren is doing. This is one of the reasons why I am absolutely firmly convinced that Brian McLaren in his new Christianity is exactly well really it's just a new iteration of ideological fascism a religion to solve political problems that's what it is 
All right, we are up on our second break, and I know what I've been saying is controversial. If you'd like to email me, you can. But before that, I want to let you know, when we come back from the second break, we're going to be doing our sermon review uh, today. We've got a good sermon from Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley entitled, Don't Expect a Miracle. Don't Expect a Miracle. Now, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions, I understand what I've just said is like probably causing your brain to explode. That's okay. Read the books I've recommended. Gene Edward Veith's Modern Fascism and Jacob Goldberg's Liberal Fascism. You need to read both those books, then get back with me. Um, but uh, if you'd like to email me in the meantime with uh, your ideas, and some of you are familiar with these works, and the light's going to go on, and you're going to go, oh, my goodness, that's what it is. Exactly. You can email me. My email address, by the way, is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. Folks, we'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. 
And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith straight ahead. Like I said, this is probably the... uh, first hour of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, one of the most important hours of radio I've ever done. Why is it important, though? The reason it's important is because in order for us to correctly combat, refute, and reject this emergent thing, we need to know what it really is. Time for our sermon review, by the way. Switching gears... The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us from all the way across the pond. There in the UK, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. We've reviewed two of his sermons previously here at Fighting for the Faith, and this will be our third. The name of this is Don't Expect a Miracle. This ought to be interesting. Pastor Charmley, by the way, is one of the pastors at Bethel Evangelical Free Church there in the UK. And he did send me an email to let me know that uh, when I was talking about Julian of Norwich, I was pronouncing it wrong. It's not witch like in sandwich, it's just like another R, it's Norwich. So I've been corrected. Anyway... So uh, let's just dive right into it. Pastor Charmley's sermons are so good. So uh, here's Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Don't expect a miracle. Our scripture reading is taken from the book of Acts and the 12th chapter. Book of Acts, chapter 12. 12th chapter of the book of Acts. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So he arrested him and put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers, intending to keep, to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. 
Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, and tie on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, Put put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel, and has delivered me from the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, You are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, set sat on his throne and gave an oration to them, and the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give the glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. We trust God's blessing on the reading of his precious and holy word. Our text uh, this morning is the chapter we've read, the 12th chapter of the book of the Acts. And one of the facts that is emphasized in this book of Acts is the church is never far from persecution, never far from suffering. And there are many, many people throughout church history and today who have suffered and who are suffering as Christians. The whole, uh, the whole reason they are suffering is because they profess faith in Christ. And this is the majority of church history. Even in this country, in the last 200 years, there has been persecution of Christians for being Christians. Despite the fact that legally, Christians, real Christians, Bible-believing Christians, are on the same level as everybody else. Nevertheless, there are people who seek to make things difficult for Christians. And there always have been. 
As we go back here to the early church, we are confronted with an account that deals with three men. Herod the king, James, and Peter. And we may set out the text under the headings, first of all, of destruction, secondly, of deliverance, and thirdly, of death. So we have, first of all, destruction. About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now, of course, there's more than one Herod in the Bible. There are quite a number. The Herods were dynasty. So this is not the Herod of the Nativity story. This is his orphaned grandson who in fact was orphaned by Herod the Great, who is the Herod of the Nativity story. Herod the Great was a, a paranoid ruler who was able to, to build a little, little kingdom comprising roughly the modern day states of Jordan and Israel. And he ruled over that. And he was paranoid that somebody was going to take it from him. And his paranoia reached his own family. And as a result, he killed several of his own sons and his own favourite wife. He was a tyrant, and a paranoid tyrant. And so, this young grandson of his, whose personal name was Agrippa, a Roman name, was sent off to Rome to be educated. And this, this fellow, who is known in history as Herod Agrippa I, was a classmate of the, the future Emperor Claudius and a great friend of the Emperor Caligula. And if you know anything about Roman history, you know Caligula is one of the worst emperors. He was quite probably insane and he was a ruthless tyrant. And Herod Agrippa I was one of his friends. And in fact, through his association with Caligula, Herod, who had been thrown in jail by the previous emperor Tiberius, was set free and set over part of his grandfather's kingdom. And by the time of this chapter, Herod Agrippa I had managed to get the whole of his grandfather's kingdom. Now he was ruling under the Romans, but nevertheless, he was a man who had gone from being in jail to being a king under the Romans. He had, he had a Roman education and he was friends with, with the emperors. And as a result, this was a man who had everything. At least as far as somebody who wasn't actually ethnically a Roman, this was the highest position you could have under the emperor, was to be a client king of Rome. Okay, notice that uh, Pastor Charmley began by reading a text in context. Now he's giving us the historical background. He, this is what's at the heart of the whole historical grammatical method. He's giving us this historical background so that we can better understand the text. Everything is about understanding, hearing, listening, and getting what the text teaches. This is good stuff so far. Let's continue. 
Now Herod Agrippa I also, at least when he was in Jerusalem, was a pious Jew. He went up to the temple and he, he wanted to please the Jews and this is why the persecution broke out. Because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he went further. He saw that the Jewish leaders disliked the Christians. And so seeing the Jewish leaders disliked the Christians, and knowing that they viewed him with some suspicion because he'd been brought up in Rome, and because the Herods were not ethnically Jews, he sought to do everything he could to please the Jewish leaders, particularly the Pharisees, who were the most strict party of the Jews. And so his motive here was entirely cynical, it was to please people. He wasn't concerned whether or not the church was a threat, he wasn't concerned what had actually been done, he was concerned with what the Jewish leaders thought about the church. That was what he was worried about. And his methods were totally arbitrary. Beheading was not a Jewish punishment. The Jewish punishment for blasphemy was to be stoned to death. We saw that with Stephen. They threw stones at Stephen until, it, until he died. That was the Jewish penalty. But because Herod Agrippa I was a, a Roman by training, he preferred the Roman method of execution, which was beheading. So he slew James, the brother of John, with the sword. James was, was one of the three inner circle of the apostles. Peter, James and John. One of the chief leaders. Peter was another one, of course, John, his brother, the third. And so in this persecution, Herod targeted the very core of the church leadership. Whether he just didn't go around to John, or whether John was away preaching somewhere else at the time, we don't know. But we do know that he took James and he killed him. And yet, this was the end of Herod's power over him. Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that do nothing, but fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. See, all Herod could do was to have James arrested and beheaded, and nothing more. And immediately following that beheading, James, James' spirit would be with Jesus in paradise. Immediately following death, he went to be with the Lord, to be with Christ, which is far better. And James himself was then beyond all persecution, beyond all of Herod Agrippa's power. As the hymn writer puts it, Jesus lives, henceforth his death, but the gate of life eternal to Christians. Death is unnatural. Death is fundamentally in itself a bad thing. Death is a curse. It was the curse given in the garden that in the day you eat of 
the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day you eat thereof, you will die. That was a curse. The death of a human being is a fundamentally wrong and unnatural thing. Whatever the cause of death, death is described in the Bible as the last enemy. And yet, and yet for the Christian, the sting of death which is sin is removed. And death becomes the, the means by which the Christian passes into the presence of Christ. Now we, we mourn over brothers and sisters in the faith who are departed. And we do so because death is unnatural. Because there is this violent separation. Not only in the family of the church, not only in human families, but in the very human person. God has made us a unity of body and soul. And death tears that unity that God made apart. And that is unnatural. We were never intended to be disembodied spirits. We were intended to be a unity of body and soul. And death is unnatural because it breaks that unity. What God has joined together, death tears apart. It is unnatural. And yet, it, is, it holds fewer terrors for Christian because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ has been through death and has risen from the grave and has declared his victory over the grave and therefore we, do, we need not fear and so we come then to deliverance having seen how the death of James pleased the Jewish people Herod Agrippa went on to have Peter arrested and put him in prison intending to bring him before the people after Passover and he knew of course what the people would say which was away with this man have him executed because you see these are the very people who had said of the Lord Jesus Christ crucify him and the servant is not about his master if the people said of Jesus crucify him we will not have this man to reign over us. What will they say of his servants but kill them? And we know, it is recorded in history, that Peter eventually was put to death. He was crucified upside down. And yet now was not the time that was appointed for him to die. He was marked for death, thrown in jail. And the first thing the church did was pray. Prayer is not a last resort for the Christian. It is the first resort. The first thing we come to is prayer. Because you see, anything else we do, there will be a delay. But with prayer it goes straight to God. When we heard of the terrible earth... got to stop there for a second. Let that one sink in. When you pray, it goes straight to God. So many times we forget that profound truth that when we are on our knees praying, our prayers do go before the very throne of God. Like, like incense is how scripture describes it. Hmm.
God is for us, who could be against us? Let's continue. Earthquake in Haiti, we... Many of us know that immediately thought of sending aid, but of course sending aid takes time. Sending prayers does not. It is immediate. You do both. And the church, no doubt, also went through legal channels. They would have appealed against Peter's arrest and said, look, this is wrong. What has this man done? There would have been appeals. But, they began with prayer. And they did not pray for a miracle. We can tell this because when the miracle occurred, they couldn't believe it. They weren't praying that God would miraculously deliver Peter. They were praying that God would set Peter free by normal human means, by having the appeal accepted, by having Herod change his mind. We are not supposed to expect miracles. There are Christian writers out there who say, oh, you should expect a miracle. No. The Bible never says expect a miracle. Great point. The Bible says expect God to work, but that is, does not mean a miracle. In fact, I would say it's a form of unbelief that says, well, God can only work through miracles. No. God works day by day through the normal causes and effects of this world. He works through providence. And that is what the church was expecting with Peter. They were expecting him to be providentially released. Providentially delivered. There are Christian books out there which are full of accounts, which are simply made up in fact of accounts of miraculous deliverances. Now I will confess to a dislike of such books, not because I don't believe in miracles. I am certain that God does miracles and that God is able and willing at times to do miracles today. But, such books create an entirely false impression of the Christian life. Because they give the impression that it's all miracles. They give the impression we should expect miraculous deliverances. Well, we shouldn't. We should expect providential deliverances. And also, of course, if Peter was delivered, James was executed. We have two Christian leaders taken and one is miraculously delivered in a wonderful way and the other one is executed. Now no doubt the church prayed that James would be delivered and it was not God's will to deliver him. No doubt later on when Peter was arrested on the occasion that led to his own execution, many, many years later, the church prayed and Peter was executed. See, God does not always deliver his people from death. There are times when he delivers his people from persecution through death. Because he's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. There are no immortal men, that is men who, do not, who are not subject to death in this world. Now we know that when the Lord comes again, those who are then living will not die, but will be changed. 
But unless the Lord comes first, every single one of us must die. Every Christian, unless the Lord comes first, must die. And so there are not, not every Christian delivered from death. Peter was delivered. They prayed for deliverance, and yet we come to the morning before the execution. The night before the execution. And there he is, in the condemned cell, chained to two Roman soldiers, and what is Peter doing? He is sleeping. Peter, the night before he is due to die, is sleeping. Why? The answer is this. Peter has peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is, a, is believing, trusting in Jesus. And he knows, he knew, that the agony of death, the, the penalty of sin was borne by his Saviour Jesus Christ. You contrast this with Jesus in the garden. Jesus agonizing in the garden, lying flat on his face. Crying, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why the difference? This is because Jesus was going to suffer the full penalty of sin in his own body on the cross. And Peter knew that Jesus had suffered for him the penalty of sin. And therefore he rejoices. He is able to sleep with a clear conscience. Not because he has not sinned, but because the full weight of his sin has been laid upon the Saviour. And Christ has died for him. Now he is dying as a witness for Christ. And so he can sleep. Because he has peace with God. And death holds no terror. Because he knows he is to go to be with Christ. No doubt Peter was looking forward, if it were God's will, and he would have thought it was, that it was God's will for him to suffer as a witness and to go to be with Christ. And yet suddenly in the midst of this night, this angel comes, sets him free and says, get dressed, leads him out. And Peter, he thought it was a vision. He thought it was like a dream. It was something that wasn't real. Perhaps he thought it was God saying to him, Look, your suffering is going to set you, you'll be, you will be set free tomorrow, set free by death. He thought it was only happening in his mind. He wasn't expecting a miracle, he was expecting to die. And you see, when we, we say to a Christian, well, you should expect a miracle. We say to a, a Christian brother or sister with cancer, well, we should, you should expect that God will actually heal you. That is not biblical. No. There must always be the thought in the heart, it is possible. Nay, it is very probable that this will be the means by which God is going to take you to himself. And so you must prepare for death. And if the miracle comes, oh then rejoice that Christ has delivered you. But do not expect the miracle. 
There is no passage in scripture that says expect a miraculous healing. Expect a miraculous deliverance. No, expect to die. It's what we would say to those Christians who are taken prisoner by Islamic extremists. I want to point something out to you. This is not a seeker-friendly servant. But he's doing the right thing because he's preparing you for death and giving you a realistic picture when it comes to miracles. Yeah, pray to your father. Pray to God. He will hear you. But don't expect, don't think that you have a right to a miracle. You don't. God is sovereign. Let's continue. Who are taken prisoner by persecutors in Vietnam. We say to them, daily there are Christians dying and suffering in Vietnam. And and to them, this word comes. To anyone who is ever suffering for Christ, the word comes, expect to die. Expect to bear witness to Christ by your blood. And rejoice if you do not. And he was delivered. He came, he comes to church and the, to the house of one of the, the prominent members. We can tell from the description of the house that John Mark's mother, who was a wealthy widow, it seems, we can tell she was wealthy because she had a house with a courtyard and she had servants. And if you've got a big house with servants, you're wealthy. And so the servant girl, slave girl, comes to the door and she's so overjoyed, she runs in the house and tells everybody. And they don't believe her. See, they weren't expecting a miracle. And yet God gave the miracle. And Peter then headed off out of the city to lie low for a while to go and preach outside Herod's realm. And so we have this great deliverance. Well, why is it that James died and Peter didn't? Well, it's this, that Peter's deliverance like all of God's deliverances, is finally a picture of the great deliverance that is to come on the day that the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory. Until that day, this world is a mixture of justice and injustice, of right and wrong. Until that day, there will often be the times in the history of this world, when wrong and tyranny is on the throne, and truth and justice and righteousness are on the scaffold. But not forever. Not forever. But there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will come in glory to deliver all his people. To deliver his people. from all their enemies. The Apostle speaks of this, the Apostle Paul speaks of this as he writes to the Thessalonians. And he speaks to the deliverance that is to come on the day of the Lord. He says, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on all and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe you see there is a day coming when God will deliver all his people from all their enemies including death itself there is a day of deliverance coming and we look at these deliverance in the Bible as a picture and at these deliverances that Christians have in the present age as a picture of the age to come and the end of this age. And so we have deliverance. And then we pass on finally to death. Herod Agrippa I, finding that his prison has escaped, calls in the guards and has them executed. A bloodthirsty tyrant will not be satisfied without blood. And so he called in the guards and had them executed because they let the prison go. Now here is the utter irrationality of unbelief. The gate was locked. The guards were at the gate. It was physically impossible, humanly impossible for anyone to escape. And indeed, it was God himself who set Peter free. Here was a miracle. And instead of falling down and saying, well, I am wrong, God has delivered his servant Peter delivered his servant Peter then Herod said well have the guards killed the witnesses of the miracle he will not believe even though a mighty miracle was done because such is the evil and the irrational heart of unbelief that it would rather deny the miracle and put the witnesses to death just as the Jews, the Jewish leaders in John's Gospel, tried to have Lazarus put to death after his, after his being raised up from the dead to deny the miracle, the irrationality of unbelief, the cruelty of the tyrant, wrong on the throne. And then we come to this final scene he came, went down to Caesarea which was his capital where he actually lived and he stayed there and he we read this, this account of how the people of Tyre and and came to him no doubt there would have been all sorts of concessions on their part to try and get food from Herod's country and so he comes up to make this royal oration. Now, of course, he trains a Roman. To a Roman, the highest skill was the skill of oratory, of public speaking. If you were a Roman, then what you wanted to be it was a public speaker. And Herod had been trained with the best, and by the best. So he came out with his royal robe, and we are told by other historians, his royal robe was made of silver thread. So out in the, the Middle Eastern sun, it would have glittered. And it would have been an amazing sight, this man clothed all in silver, giving this great speech with all the, the skill of the Roman school. 
And so the people cry out, the voice of a god and not of a man. Well, these were, these were pagans, remember. The people of Tyre and Sidon. To a pagan, that was a, a quite acceptable way of admiring somebody. But Herod was king of the Jews. He was supposed to be a Jew, a devout Jew. And instead of immediately saying, no, no, I'm a man, not a god, he basked in the applause. Just as his Roman patrons and friends, the emperors, basked in the idea that they would become gods when they died. And the, the applause they had of being semi-divine on earth, and he just basked in it. Ah, they are calling me a god. And at that moment, the judgment of God fell upon him. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Well, just as we see in Peter's deliverance a picture of that deliverance of God's people on the last day. We see here a terrible foreshadowing of the judgment to come upon all God's enemies on that last day. When we see these, these judgments, not all persecutors die horribly. Many of them have died in their beds. Many have died peacefully. But every so often God's judgment comes forward into history. And it says this is the final end awaiting all of God's enemies, because you see, Herod was eaten of worms and died. But the Lord Jesus Christ says there is an eternal hell in which the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. To be eaten, as it were, of worms for all eternity. That is the terrible fate. There is awaiting all who love sin more than God. All who do not give God the glory. And the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth to save us from that eternal hell. This is why if you count up the passages in the scriptures, it is Jesus who speaks more of hell than anybody else, because he came to deliver us from it. And if we so we see here... Oh, great line. Jesus talks more of hell than anyone else because he came to deliver us from it. <laughs> That's so brilliant. I'm stealing that line, Pastor Charmley. Wow. Yeah, Herod eaten of worms. And yet we see there the foreshadowing of the impenitent sinner eaten of worms for all eternity. And it is as if we see we've seen that Peter is delivered from death. By the Lord Jesus. By Jesus' love. And this you see, this is what is held out in the gospel. Deliverance from death. Deliverance into the kingdom of Christ. Deliverance from that eternal fire. From the worm that never dies. Herod had his good things in this world. But all the wretchedness of his existence now and for all eternity. As he lay dying, history records, he said to those sycophants, You call me a god, now see me now. 
So he died this most wretched and horrible death. But oh, how terrible it will be on that last day for those who are told by the Lord Jesus Christ, depart from me into everlasting punishment. But oh, how blessed and how wonderful to be told on that last day by Jesus, come you blessed of my Father and enter the kingdom. Come to everlasting life. On the one hand there is everlasting punishment, but on the other there is everlasting life. Not mere existence, but life. To be with Christ for all eternity. This is what is to be gained, and that is what is to be fled from. So we see there is injustice and suffering now. But there is justice to come. There is a day of judgment to come. And none shall stand and be delivered in that day. Except those who have given all. Who have ventured wholly upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Apart from those who trust him alone. And have given up all other trust. Jesus is coming back to judge. Do we look forward? Do you look forward to that? you are a Christian you should because then there will be no more pain no more suffering then death will be swallowed up in victory and Jesus Christ shall reign forever and ever and so to him, to the king immortal, invisible the only wise God to him be all glory and praise forever and ever Amen <sighs> Amen Great stuff. I mean, uh, on the text, clear gospel, clear law. I mean, oh. folks, this is the kind of preaching we all need to be hearing Sunday after Sunday. Why? Because it teaches us what God's word says. It helps us better understand the text and it points us to Christ. It points us to Christ. It points us to Christ, and it properly distinguishes between law and gospel, tells us of what Christ is saving us from, sin, death, and the devil, and hell, and what we're being saved to, eternal life with Christ, and it gives us a real, realistic picture of what it is that we, you know, in our relationship with God, what are we to expect from him? What does Pastor Charmley say? Don't expect a miracle this side of heaven. God isn't under no obligation to grant you a miracle. And yet, still bring your petitions to God. Knowing that over here, this side of Christ's return, suffering, pain, death, persecution, awaits us in spades and yet abide in Christ knowing the good news that Christ gives us that he who endures to the end will be saved and we endure in Christ oh good stuff all right need to remind you all fighting for the faith is well listener supported radio that means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring fighting for the faith to you you can support us financially uh, by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, 
uh, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says, um, join our crew. The other says, donate. And uh, when you uh, join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 a month, which is like nothing, to uh, Fighting for the Faith and the uh, in the Mission of Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, pay close attention because when you sign up, you get access to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove. You know, so pay close attention. That's on the last screen there when you sign up. And, of course, uh, you, uh, if you'd like to uh, fill in the amount as to how much you would like to uh, send to us as a financial gift, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. I know some of you have some, uh, you would like to send me some email and chime in on what you've heard on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Please feel free to do so. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Sorry, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Yeah, I'm a tweeter. Uh, pirate Christian's my name there, Tim. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.